You're listening to the Meditation and Attachment Podcast with George Haas. For more information, please visit our website at www.metagroup.org. So welcome, everybody. This is uh, Meditation and Attachment, deepening your practice. It is October 29th, 2020 at 7.35 p.m. Pacific time. And we're um, talking about Vipassana for a while. Um, we did a basic see here field technique last week, and this week we're going to move into doing a see here field technique with a focus in, focus out strategy. Um, in the beginning, what we're attempting to do is develop the basics of a meditation uh, experience. Um, in the Satipatthana Sutta, this is described as four things. One is the energy level, uh, two is the sensory clarity, three is the um, awareness of the present moment, and the fourth is concentration. And then the rest of the Satipatthana Sutta goes on to describe different ways of investigating uh, and um, uh, exploring the insights that are necessary for awakening. Um, there's a refrain that repeats 17 times throughout the sutta, which explains this uh, basic uh, investigative stance, um, mindfulness of inside, mindfulness of outside, mindfulness of inside and outside is what the uh, see here, feel, focus in, focus out aspect is attempting to develop. The sense of self arises from the internal experience and the sense of the world rises arises from the external experience. Internal visual thinking, internal auditory thinking, and, and the felt sense of emotion in the body tends to create this internal experience of self and external sight space, external sound space, and the physicality of the body interacting with the environment tends to generate the experience of the outside. One of the things that's interesting about growing up in the West is that we're a lot of the uh, way that we understand and uh, experience uh, the world is through uh, these uh, really ancient thought patterns. The, uh, in ancient Greece, the understanding of the pedagogy of uh, experience or seeing was really that we take in what's outside and create in, in an internal sense a working model of that. And it, it conveys in that understanding that we are creating internally this model that we take from uh, the outside uh, and that, that often the, we have the experience of that model being an accurate representation of what's out there. Um, this is very different than the, the Buddhist understanding of how things are, are created. Uh, in the Buddhist model, uh, we uh, allow our sensing experiences to go out. We collect uh, data bring that data in, and then make the experience of self and world from that data, and then we project it outward. And so that in, the, in Buddhist philosophy or cosmology, what we're really looking at when we look out at the world is something that we've created and projected out, not something that we're passively taking in as an accurate representation of what's out there. This is one of the fundamental shifts in terms of view to begin to understand the nature of uh, enlightenment and what we think that is. 
um, the internal experience of, of self arises and we have a sense of ownership or authorship or doing or controlling or making or causing to happen. And we often have the experience that that sense of self is constant and unchanging. Uh, even when we reflect back on our childhoods and think of ourselves as a, as much younger, uh, we we can have this sense that it's the same person. Uh, we were the same person then uh, that we are now, even though there's no evidence to support that and all evidence is contrary to that, right? Um, that doesn't seem to matter much in the way that we construct this. What we're attempting to do then is to, to see into the nature of this, this creation of the experience that we have um, in this human form. And when you can see that clearly, uh, then uh, it's a thought that you are enlightened when you can see clearly the nature of everything. One of my teachers, Dan Brown, was telling me the other day that um, when you see through all of those uh, identifications of self and open into a view of things the way that they are, all experience becomes a view of the sacred. Uh, in the Tibetan tradition, he called it the mandala opening up and that you are constantly in the experience of the sacred uh, and that that's the shift that happens. Mm -hmm. By purifying view, The Theravada approach is, is, is different from that in the sense that uh, in the beginning, we're just trying to clarify the sensing experience and develop enough resolution in the sensing experience that we can see uh, moment by moment what's happening. And then the, the second uh, insight is around the nature of mind. So in a traditional formulation, um, I consciousness is the sensing experience, the pure sensing experience, uh, light and form. And I consciousness experience is, uh, or I mind conscious, uh, consciousness experience is the making of that into something. So if you look through just I, just the sensing experience of the I, you see color and form. If you look through the look at the sensing experience through um, the mind, then you see a chair or a curtain or a picture. You make it into something. So part of this process is beginning to notice that uh, process as it's happening. Mind uh, moves around the experience that's in front of us and begins to select these mind moments and then we create out of those mind moments the experience that we're having as if it were solid and real and out there, even though uh, it's coming from inside and we're projecting it outward. What we begin to notice as we do that is that the mind has a, uh, has a it's almost like a list of high value targets. And if they're in the environment, it spends more time focused on those and things that are of low, low interest, it doesn't focus on. 
And so you begin to get the sense that you create the experience of self and world out of high value targets, which is a, a distortion of, of what's out there based on your conditioning, things that you're drawn to, things that you're uh, repelled from. Um, so then we want to begin to pay attention to that. What are the high value targets? What do we tend to look at and be interested in? What are the things that we don't notice? So that we can begin to have a representation of our conditioning to see what we're drawn to and what we're drawn away from. We tend to create working models. These are uh, uh, experiences that are stored in our perceptual database uh, that develop the way that we know what the pure sensing experience is. So when you, you're conditioned, for instance, to recognize a chair, there are elements of, of whatever it is. I'm sitting in a room with three different chairs. They're all quite different, but they have in common four legs and a back and sides and arms. Um, they're covered with fabric, all of those different things that you can begin to recognize, which creates this understanding of what a chair is. Actually, I can look outside and see outside there's also a dozen chairs which are all the same sort of uh, patio furniture. Um, but they're, they're wooden and they have a patina and the patina on each of them is slightly different. Um, and even though the patterns of that are different, I can still identify them as similar. And so this is that process of how we make up things and understand what they are. And so can you track that in real time as it's happening and understand uh, how you've selected things from the environment uh, and uh, then from that selection of high value targets created your perception of what's actually happening, even though it's an incomplete picture of what's happening that it's a, actually a preference. And so when we walk into an environment that's filled with uh, high value targets, we find the, 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 the environment meaningful. And when we walk into uh, an environment that doesn't have a lot of high value targets in it, we might be bored or find it an uninteresting or barren place to be in. But it doesn't, uh, it's not an intrinsic evaluation of the experience of the space that we're in. It's based on our preferences, our conditioning around what's interesting to us. And uh, can you track that in real time as it's unfolding? The sense of self then is made up of these experiences. We don't use a precise uh, uh, defining of experiences in that way. If we did, uh, we wouldn't be able to recognize, recognize ourselves one moment to the next or one year to the next because we would be too different. We wouldn't be able to recognize other people. So we have more of a general sense that's made up of these uh, elements of visual, auditory, the felt sense, the emotional aspect of the body, which gives it that realness. And in that uh, framework of the the working model of self, we include mind states. So we can associate afflictive mind states or beneficial mind states with, with the working model. And so when we generate the experience of self in the moment, uh, we activate that working model. We have 
in the West often a quite harsh, critical way of being in relationship to the self, which is stored in the working model. And so when it activates in relationship to the conditions of the present moment, if there's a lot of afflictive mind states associated with it, we have uh, an aversive response to the experience of self, which is the origin of self-hatred. You can then, uh, of course, work with embedding in the working model of self positive mind state so that when the self arises, the experience of the self is one that creates a sense of positivity. And so that changes that aversive response. Craving, aversion, and unconsciousness, the opposite of equanimity. Can you be present in the experience of the present moment and simply allow whatever arises and passes in the present moment to come and go? Can you allow the formulations of self and world uh, to arise and pass away and just be in that activity of your self? Uh, in, uh, Dan uh, calls it his Danness, or if it were me, my Georgeness. Can you be in the experience of being without having to do anything and notice that that, that process of sensing and creating out of that sensing experience self and world just happens whether you intend to do it or not and then can you be present for the activity of that and watch it in such a way that you you have insight into the way that you form that experience can you see that you don't have to intend all of that to happen it's just constantly unfolding constantly happening the experience of ownership of it of control of it of the causing, the doing of it, the sensing of self of it arising and passing um, is, the, is the activity that happens uh, without the self then controlling it. So today in, or tonight in the practice, I want you to pay attention to uh, not only the division of the sensing experiences into these six spaces of external sight space, internal visual thinking, external sound space, internal auditory thinking, um, the external experience of the body in the world and emotion internally. But I want you to begin to pay attention to way where your attention is drawn without intentionally controlling where you allow it to go. Just let the attention flow from object to object and pay attention to that movement of attention from object to object without intending to control the experience of it. In the progress of insight, the uh, commentary that Mahasi Sadao wrote about the fourth path model of enlightenment, which is the Theravada model, the 16 stages of insight. The second stage is this uh, watching the flow of consciousness, conditionality, it's called. This moment sets up the possibility for what is available to pay attention to in the next moment. Um, if you, um, one of the things about being in the West, of course, is that we, we're quite science oriented uh, and uh, when we talk about the, the, what I generally think of as metaphor, this 
metaphysical aspect of Buddhist thought, um, it's unsatisfying without some scientific underpinning that makes sense. And one of the favorite things that my, but that uh, Indika Sayadaw said to me, um, he gave a Dharma talk in uh, Myanmar. Pinu, there's a monastery in Pinu Luin, which is up in the mountains, sort of in the, the, the eastern, northeastern part. Um, you may or may not know your, your uh, Miramar geography. <laughs> Cancun is in the south uh, near the coast and then Mandalay is uh, up in the mountains uh, and then even further up in the mountains is Pinuluwin. Pinuluwin was the place where uh, Orwell wrote uh, uh, several of his novels. He was in the military at the time and uh, uh, Burma is more uh, Myanmar is in the tropics and and so the uh, the command, which was in Mandalay, uh, would move uh, up into the mountains in Pindu, the wind for the for the summer months because it was so hot. Um, <clears throat> so at this monastery, which was built mainly for Westerners, uh, so that there's a lot of kutis that you know they have Western toilets as opposed to the traditional Asian ones, and you get your own room and. And they're very meticulous about the preparation of the food because it's so easy to get sick. Um, he gave a talk, and in this talk, he said that um, there was this uh, Mirama family, and they were going to go to the Shwedagon Pagoda in, uh, in uh, Yangon, which is one of the big um, historic uh, uh, Buddhist sites in the world. And uh, they were they were going to bring uh, their mother, who was quite elderly, and she was taking too long to get ready. And so they decided that they would leave her at home, and they would. And so they all piled into a taxi and drove across town. And um, she, uh, rather than get resentful that she had been left at home and abandoned, sat down and did metta practice and that the energy of the metta practice was so intense that it propelled her uh, through the air across Yangon and that she actually arrived at the Shwedagon Pagoda before her family in the taxi arrived and then she greeted them as uh, they got there. So this is what I mean by this kind of metaphor, the metaphysical explanation of the nature of how um, we understand this stuff working, which is to me not that satisfying. Actually, it's very hard for me to imagine that you could do so much metta that you would have such intense PT that it would repel you uh, through the sky across town. Which I said to the Sando, and he said to me, "You have one of those sharp Western minds, so you can't see what's right in front of you." So when I think of this, uh, I tend to think of it in terms of quantum mechanics because that actually uh, makes a sense. Uh, Dan Brown says, in the West, science uh, is where we've placed our miraculous, whereas in, in Asia, in, in, at least in the uh, monastery up in Pinu, the wind, 
where it's mostly village people besides the, the foreigners. So it's very metaphysical in the way that these magical, things that seem magical, uh, magic of the unbelievable kind happen. But you know, we are human beings and we live in these bodies that have very limited capacity to sense things. And it's hard uh, to make sense of the nature of the world. Um, do you have the sense that we're, we live on a planet called Earth, which is a tiny little thing in the middle of the Milky Way, which is one of uh, a limitless number of galaxies in, in the universe? Um, I had a friend, uh, Paul Hoffman, who worked at UCLA, uh, was a physicist. And we would have lunch and I would insist that he explain to me how we live in a, in a, a universe that doesn't, doesn't expand. Um, that the, that it, there's nothing for the universe to expand into and yet it's ever expanding. Um, and he, he could do it mathematically with a few equations on a napkin, but I can't make sense of that. Uh, and so it was again back to these metaphors to describe the nature of the universe and the vastness of this uh, experience that we are engaged in and part of. Everything changes, everything is uh, volatile and unpredictable and, and really can be frightening. How do you come into balance in this experience of being alive in the world? Um, particularly with the very limited capacity we have to sense anything and to make a uh, sense out of anything. So quantum mechanics then becomes the explanation that I find quite comfortable in terms of how these things happen. And the Sayadaw found the, the idea that somebody could fly across uh, Yangon on the energy of a metta, uh, a good explanation. So you'll have to make sense of this for yourself. When Dan says to me that when you see clearly what is happening in front of you, it opens up to this place where everything is sacred and that you begin to see in the formulation of everything that, that you are in this sacred life. And, and that uh, I have glimpses of sometimes in, in, in practice, uh, the way that he describes it. Can you find this in the way that you're practicing, particularly in the Vipassana system where we're pulling everything apart and then watching it come back together so that we can see through these limiting beliefs that we create to hold on to um, some sense of uh, safety, of security, of solidness in this world that is so vast and so um, changeable. I'm a person who likes routines. I get up at the same time um, most days and I go through the, the, this routine of my day. I have lunch every day at one, And that, that gives me a sense of order, which I quite like.
So this is what we're doing. We're, we're taking a look at this experience, the way that we actually make up the experience of the world, make up the experience of ourselves, and begin to see that it's based on this, uh, this uh, perceptual database. There's the capacity to sense, it meets the object that can be sensed, the consciousness of the sensing experience arises, it's evaluated for processing speed, vagueness, the poly word, uh, is it uh, unpleasant or dangerous or needs immediate attention? Is it neutral? Most experiences. Is it pleasant? If we have time, can we engage in that? And then it's compared to the perceptual database. And if there's a close enough match in the perceptual database, the pure sensing experience becomes um, the thing that we make it into. And we need to move beyond the belief that the thing that we're making it into is, a, is an accurate representation of, their, of what's there and begin to understand that it's uh, a representation of our current conditioning and that that conditioning is changeable. Uh, and to uh, then project outward this world that we live in, knowing that we can change the nature of that from an, uh, an, a conditioned afflictive response to a conditioned uh, beneficial response. Um, one of the things that's um, been so instructive to me in, in being in relationship to Dan is that he says that we, over and over again, that you suppress the afflictive thought patterns relentlessly, over and over again. You don't give them any airtime and you replace them over and over again with these beneficial uh, ways of being in the world. Um, because we're creating this conceptual reality which we project outward, uh, and we can create it in any way that, that we want in, in that sense, you can create a, a, a positive version just as quickly as you can create a negative version, and, and you can create a version where you don't suffer just as quickly as you want create one where you do suffer. Um, and that can change the way that you can be in relationship to yourself and also through a relationship with other people. In Buddhism, really, uh, the world is meant to be other people and to be in relationship to other people. We are uh, pack animals. We live in, in groups, complex social groups. Stephen? Yes, I find it very interesting, the comment about um, how agile one can be at replacing afflictive mind states and uh, creating new ones to replace them. Can you, um, I, I know with ideal parenting figure, there's, it's often, uh, I've experienced that with you, but I was just wondering if you could give an example of what you would do um, during the course of your everyday where you're met with some uh, afflictive thinking. Um, do, do you spontaneously turn that into, uh, do you recognize that and then, and then flip it into um, a positive? Like, could you give some sort of pragmatic everyday example? Well, 
attaching is the, the word in English or identifying or believing. The afflictive thought arises and you believe it. And so then you attach to it and it becomes something solid and real. And what's lost in that is the perspective that actually it isn't any more real than a positive formulation of the same experience. But because the conditioning is there so intensely, we lose sight of that experience of it being something that we've created. Um, the more that you begin to just reflexively uh, squash the negative thoughts and immediately replace them with the positive thought, the more enduring the experience of that kind of uh, replacement becomes. Um, you know, we're so conditioned so early often around some of these things that, uh, and we've been using them reliably for so many years as a way of uh, navigating and regulating our experience of the present moment that it just naturally happens. So, but uh, you asked for a, a, a practical example. One of the things that I, I have that's very, uh, it's troubling to me um, in the sense that the, the, it creates an experience of helplessness, which is unenjoyable. Um, but in uh, a certain aspect of the dream cycle, when I'm when uh, in the morning, uh, when I'm uh, moving from a sleep state into a dream state into a consciousness state, I often have a dream sequence where I'm trying to get something done, and no matter how hard, how many different ways I try to do it, uh, I can't get it to happen. Each time I think it's just about to happen, something else comes up and prevents it from happening. And it creates a sense of frustration and a sense of helplessness and a sense of despair almost. Um, but I can get to a place where I can simply drop it and then reimagine it going the way that I want to. And it completely relieves that whole uh, process of, a conditioned helplessness. Um, but it takes that coming out of that sort of almost dreamlike state and then going back into it with the intention to change it. Um, and that's an experience that I have over and over again. Uh, so uh, I've, and I've done the change so many times that almost all of the time I can get the mind to shift the gear into yep, I can do that, it's easy. But there are times when I can't overcome the momentum of the conditioning and get my mind to shift into it. In Buddhism, we don't really make a distinction between uh, dream states and conscious states. They're all considered to be part of the, the thinking process. Um, what's... Um, vivid about that for me is that it's it happens when there's nothing else happening because i'm i'm you know i'm in bed and nothing's happening the day hasn't really started when you're in in the activity of the day and you're you're caught up in the many things that have to happen it, it's sometimes uh, harder to notice that you're operating based on these limiting beliefs uh, because they seem so real uh, and so balanced in terms of 
how they present. Um, but understand that we do create this perception of what's going on and that's actually what we're dealing with. And, and if we can remember that in the moment, we can drop the formulation and recreate it. Uh, and we can do that repeatedly to see whether or not we can come into a more equanimous state that's more accurately reflective of what's actually happening rather than uh, the distortion of it. Another example would be somebody sends me an email which I read and I have a strong emotional response to it. Uh, um, I don't accept the strong emotional response to the email as an accurate representation of what the email says because I recognize that my mind has been distorted by a strong emotional response to the content. And so I will wait until after the uh, emotional uh, storm, let's say, comes and goes, and then I'll reread the email to see whether the response to it is the same as it was and uh, if it still seems inaccurate to me, I'll actually ask somebody else uh, to read the email to see what their response to it is because their conditioning is different than mine and they're going to react to the content of the email differently than I would. And that additional perspective to it is useful. Um, we're trying to engage in skillful responses to things. So, uh, intention and action is then followed by result. And, and so we want to, to make the intention to take an ethical response to the situation that arises. Uh, and so we, we do have to be able to get into a place where we can see it clearly enough to know what that is before we create the intention and take the action. Is that making sense? Have you ever? Yes, very, very, yes, George, very much so. Thank you. Um, I, ten, I tend to think of myself as a, a kind of a, a good guy who's actually intending to do good things and uh, to be helpful, but that isn't uh, anywhere near the universal response that I get from the world. <laughs> It's always sort of surprising to me. I have a big self-reaction when somebody uh, suggests that I don't have good intentions and that I'm not kind and all the rest of the things that can happen. But I don't feel relieved of the obligation to do that, to make those kinds of intentions in my response to things, even if I, I, I notice that somebody's being aggressive in terms of their reaction to something that I've done. And so I think that this is also part of it. You are you have that obligation to be ethical in your response to things, no matter how somebody pushes uh, toward you. And so sometimes it takes a, a a while to process that. But the main piece is that if you believe the the way that you formulated it is accurate, and you're not open to constantly checking it, it's a kind of rocking back and forth between ultimate experience, the sensing experience, the pure sensing experience, and then rocking forward into the conceptual reality that you make out of it. And this constant gentle rocking motion back and forth between the two 
it can get easy to be swept up into the to the conceptual reality and the way that you formulated and miss uh, the distortions that might have gotten in the in the way of creating something that, that's a sort of neutral, uh, accurate reflection that, to what's happening. When you see deeply into the nature of self, you you also recognize that these momentary manifestations of it don't need to be defended. They, they just come and go like everything else. It's a useful way to organize and to be able to communicate and to collaborate with other people. But beyond that, it doesn't need to be defended. If you create a sense of self and it's and people react aversively to it, it's, it's interesting and useful to explore what it was in that moment in the creation of self that, that caused the reactions that it got so that you can be skillful the next time you make an expression. But beyond that, there's no need to, uh, I think, defend it. So thank you all for coming. Um, just wanna uh, review the calendar. I'm gonna be doing a, a weekend retreat in December on the 12th and 13th, meditation and attachment for addiction. So we'll be going through uh, Saturday and half of Sunday, uh, relapse prevention strategies for that. I'm starting a level two class in December. Uh, so if you're interested in doing the meditation and attachment curriculum, that will be uh, starting on December 3rd, I think. I have a, a six-day virtual retreat, which is uh, starting on uh, the day after Christmas, December so December 26th or December 28th. Can't remember. Uh, it's on the website. Look. Oops, the 28th. So the 28th through the 2nd of January is a retreat. We do have some scholarships available for the level two class and for the retreat. The retreat is going to be uh, limited to 24 people and the level two class to 12. So if you're interested in it, uh, take a look at that and sign up. They're, they're both about half full and we expect them both to close. Um, we'll be doing another level one series starting in January. I think that's pretty much everything that's coming up. I've just released a new book called The Lower Manhattan Dormitory Effect. And on uh, November, uh, what day is that? Sorry, my calendar mind isn't on today. Um, on November 7th, I'm gonna do a reading at 4.30 in the afternoon for, from that uh, book. So if you're interested in that, take a look at that. Uh, this class is offered on a Donna basis. Donna is the Pali word for generosity. So I offer the teacher the teachings freely, but then I do hope that you'll support me through a donation. You can find a link for that either on the website or in the email that you might have received for the class. Any amount is appreciated. It helps support me and also the work that Metagroup is doing. And uh, it's very much appreciated if you can do it. And of course, if you can't, that's totally fine. Uh, we as a community will su support your practice. Thank you for coming and we'll see you soon, I hope. Bye.